0: Colossians 2, Paul's epistle, his letter to the 1st century church in Colossae, chapter 1. Since study. and we've already got to Colossians 1, verse 18. Sorry about that. Um, I don't think we're going to progress too much through these scriptures tonight. to be honest. There's so much content in each verse that uh, you almost study the, the, the book word by word. Uh, so we will read a few verses one uh, Colossians one eighteen just through verse twenty three there. Paul continues as he reflects upon the supremacy of Christ. And he that is Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he, uh, that is God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the gospel held out, hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is God's word. Let's pray a blessing. Father, just help us as we gather around these wonderful scriptures once again to hear the voice of God. We will, of course, hear audibly the voice of a man, just a man, and be a man. But we long to hear through your chosen vessel the voice of God. Speak, Father, we pray, in the name of Jesus, by your Holy Spirit and reveal to us afresh and new the wonders of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want us to think initially about Christ, the head of the church. <clears throat> Colossi was a small town in the Lycus Valley. Here Christians were under threat They were under pressure. Their backs, as it were, were against the wall. The first century church in Colossae is not, as I see it, unlike the the, the Christian church today. Small fellowships fearing the surrounding culture is going to overwhelm them and sink the church. But Paul reminds the Colossians that although they live in hostile Colossae, they are also living, dwelling, as it were, in Christ. There's that expression we are be familiar with it, aren't we, in the original Greek, on Christo. They physically live in hostile Colossae, but they are in Christ. And therefore they are a part of God's eternal purposes, and they can be assured that God will have his way. The principal of Morland's Bible College and fellow Scouser Steve Brady. I'm a, I'm a red, Steve Brady is a blue. But he puts it like this God has written the Colossians, into the great musical score of the ages that will ultimately bring his symphony of grace to the present cacophony of our world. I like that, don't you? Listen again. God has written the Colossians into the great musical score of the ages that will ultimately bring his symphony of grace to the present cacophony of our world. In other words, in spite of the threats that encroach the Christian church, both in 1st century Colossi and equally in 21st century Procter Preeth, God will have his way. The Colossians are a part of God's church and they matter. They are vital. Reverend, God's church is, as I see it, an outpost in time of God's everlasting kingdom. Think about it. We are an outpost in time of that which is eternal in nature. And so there's a sense in which the church points to that glorious kingdom that is to come. And therefore, the church is in the here and now a foretaste, a pointer of Christ and his eternal kingdom. Therefore, friends, we can be absolutely assured that in spite of the threats, the church is safe. The church is secure. God will have his way. And so this little church in Colossi, bruised and battered, fearful, fretful, isolated, perhaps they felt. But Paul says, brethren, you're the church of Christ. You're an outpost in time of the blessed promise concerning eternity. Fret not, nor fear. God will have his way. And Paul reassures them further in verse 18. He makes a telling statement to fact. He says here, he, that is Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the body of the church. My friends, if Christ is the head, how safe is the church How's the body? <laughs> Super safe as safe as as any being, living, vibrant being can be, because Christ is the head. Some of you might be familiar with what has become known as the Peter Principle. No? Tom Peters is an American management guru who coined the the phrase the Peter Principle. In essence, The principle states that people keep getting promoted until they reach the level of their incompetence. (laughs) How does that apply to Jesus Christ? Is Jesus up to the job as the head of the church? Is Jesus up to the job of running his church. Is Jesus big enough for such a challenge? Or has he, and I say this very guardedly, I say it trembling, has he been promoted to the level of his incompetence as head of the church? Well, of course not. Of course not. That's why tonight I am thrilled that Doug Atherton is not the head of Kuiper and community church. <laughs> because if I were, it would be disaster, darling. <laughs> and I'm thrilled, as gifted as they are, that the diaconate are not the heads of Kuiper Mine community church. Because if it were, it would be disaster, darling. No, my friends, tonight I am thrilled Jesus is the head of Kuiper Mike Community Church. Jesus is the head of his church, Universal. Because he is qualified to fulfill his purposes for his very own body. Isn't that reassuring? He is qualified. He will see us through. Let me put it this way. The one who runs the church runs the church alongside running the universe, for goodness sake. Now you think that compared to sustaining billions of planets in who knows how many universes beyond our own, compared to that, overseeing the church, the millions of people in the church, cannot be so arduous a challenge, can it? It kind of puts it into perspective, doesn't it? <laughs> He he pulls the stars out one by one, does he not? If he, if he can, can tackle that challenge on the chin, so to speak, then his church it's almost like a piece of cake, isn't it? Why, brethren, do we fret so therefore? When the world encroaches, when the enemy seems to set in. And get his foot in the door. Why do we fret so? When we feel as though situations and circumstances are, are out of our control. They might be out of our control. Bless God that they are. Because they are in the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the head of the church. I'll be honest with you. This is something of a challenge for those of us who like to believe that we are in charge of, of the church that we serve. Now, of course, God raises up leaders. But those leaders are not indispensable. If they feel they are, then they have a theological problem. Let's be honest, there are many, in very Christian leaders who have theological problems <laughs> these days. Who think that they have become indispensable to the churches they serve. If Christians begin to feel indispensable to the church they serve, there's a sense in which they have stopped believing in the Trinity and have embraced a doctrine that I call quadrinitary. To coin a phrase. <laughs> they see themselves, as it were, as co-equal to the Godhead. But Paul tells us here that Christ is both the cause and the source of the church's life and I'm so thrilled that he is as the church, the body of Christ stays connected to the head she draws from him, that is Christ all she needs to tough it out in difficult situations isn't that right? the church has one foundation he put it beautifully, didn't he? the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. The church has one head, one supreme governor, and he is the one who runs the universe. Is there anyone else out there competent to be the church's head and sustainer? Absolutely not. If anybody claims to be so, then be assured, my friends, only omnipotence need apply. And that leaves me out. Isn't it wonderful to know Jesus is the head of the church. How reassuring that is. Paul continues his Christological discourse by declaring in verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness, that's the fullness of the Godhead, All his fullness dwell in him. In Christ. (laughs) Isn't that something? So Christ, the head of the church. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. Now, essentially, this is the, the Christmas story, isn't it? That we've not long since celebrated. This is... As, uh, as certain scholars put it, the scandal of particularity for Christianity. No other religion claims this, and so it's the scandal of particularity for Christianity within a political, uh, politically correct environment. Christianity, you, you and I, we insist that this is. One solitary, unique life. We truly meet our creator God, Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. We believe that the almighty, infinite, personal God stepped into this little speck of interstellar dust, our earth, in an obscure galaxy to redeem us in Christ. Isn't it mind-boggling? Charles Wesley captures the wonder of this spectacularly in his wonderful hymn. Let earth and heaven combine. Angels and men agree to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. Our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. Christ, says Paul the head of the church, this very same one, God, was pleased to have all the fullness of the deity dwell in him. How wonderful. So in spite of the claims of many these days who say that Jesus Christ could not be very man and very God, They are wrong. Christ the fullness of God. And the Apostle Paul continues his Christological discourse by speaking about Christ the firstborn from the dead. Here's that expression again, isn't it? Firstborn. If verse 19 reminds us of the Christmas story, then verses 18, 20, and 22 remind us of the Easter story. He says, Through him, God, through Jesus Christ, to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So God... Through his Son, Jesus Christ, in whom he was pleased to place all the fullness of the Godhead in him. In this Christ, God reconciled to himself all things by making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. What does Blood symbolize what does it communicate in scripture well here of course it speaks of a life given in death a life given in death a violent sacrificial death at that elsewhere reminded uh, but the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 9.22 says without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins so here then is the cross the cross The Apostle Paul focuses his Christology on the cross. You know, it's interesting for those who are students of early church history. For the first three or four centuries, Christians dared not use the symbol of the cross. That's shocking to us, isn't it? Because it's so much a part of our life. As Christians. But in the first three or four centuries AD, Christians dare not use the symbol of the cross. They knew, you see, what it meant. And they understood more than we can its horror. They understood more than we can that it was a place of immense torture and pain. They could not use the symbol of the cross as we use it today, perhaps until the memory of the awfulness of crucifixion had died out along with the Roman Empire, arguably. But the purpose of the cross was understood. In and through the cross, Jesus fully God, yet fully man, in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt laid down his life to become the firstborn from the dead. Cecil Francis Alexander put it beautifully. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. That we might go at last to heaven saved by his precious blood. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in Amen. friends how desperate how terrible our sin must be if there was no other solution than the eternal son of God within whom the fullness of the God had dwelt Amen. had to die Amen. on a wrong ground the death, remember, of the accursed to bear our sin away. Because Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, literally from the Greek, verse 18, firstborn from out of the dead. I suppose that's probably more correct. He's the firstborn from out of the dead. Here we have resurrection. We've looked at the Christmas story, we've looked at the Easter story, now we're focused on the the story of resurrection. You see, Christians, we don't believe that Jesus just came back from the dead as a kind of ghost-like figure. We don't believe that that Jesus simply reappeared for a while uh, enjoying a kind of resuscitation uh, like existence, like Lazarus of John chapter 11, uh, equal, uh, granted, true enough, Lazarus died and was raised again. However, the problem with Lazarus, like the problem with the, the widow of Nain's son, like the problem with Jairus's daughter, they had to, 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 to die again. And they did die again. But Jesus, you see, he was the first born from among the dead. In other words, he was the, the firstborn who didn't have to die again. He died, was resurrected, the firstborn from from among the dead. He didn't have to die again. And friends, you and I live, and short of Christ coming and, and rapturing his church, we will die. But Jesus Christ was the firstborn from among the dead. He rose victorious, never to die again. And I labour the point because the wonder here is that because Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, we might never die. There's a sense in which spiritually we follow his footsteps. (laughs) We might never die. It says in Romans 6 verse 9, For we know that that Christ was raised from the dead, And he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Don't we know of anybody else like this, any great philosopher, any politician or economist or educator or religious leader who has died, never to die again? Well, of course not. Once again, we speak about the uniqueness of the Christian faith. We speak again of the scandal of particularity for Christianity. Nobody else claims this. But we do. Because it's the truth. Jesus alone is the firstborn. He is the preeminent from among the dead. And this is the great news, friends. Because Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead the first to rise from the dead in endless life thank God he isn't the last he's simply a forerunner for many others and if we are in Christ tonight we number amongst the many others Amen. we friends yes you and I we are going to be raised in power also Amen. he The living Christ, because he is the firstborn from among the dead, because he rose never to die again, we in Christ will follow in his footsteps, so to speak. Yes, this outward body might waste away and eventually die, but that matters not. The inward body is constantly being renewed day by day, and ultimately, what really matters is that we'll spend eternity with him. Hallelujah. He's the firstborn from among the dead, the dead. So the dog gathered to... Dog gathered to. Who, you say? Who's he? Well, exactly. A young whipper... Well, not so young these days. whipper from Liverpool. Who is he? He might follow in the footsteps of Christ. Wow. I follow in his footsteps. He has come before me never to die that Doug Atherton might never die. Hallelujah. No wonder the Apostle Paul wrote that uh, he is the resurrection of life. <laughs> Christ said either, I'm the resurrection of life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me, says Christ, will never die. Hallelujah. Wow. <clears throat> and it now? Christ. He, he continues this, this. Isn't it mind-boggling? You think you know Christ, don't you, sometimes? And, um, it's got to be reminded of such deep thoughts. It's got to have to grapple, isn't it, with, with the meat of the Word. Understand who Jesus is a little more. Because the more we understand him, the more we marvel at the salvific work of grace. The more we we revel in the work of Christ in our lives. Isn't it something? He says Christ is the reconciler. So not only is is Christ the, the head of the church. Not only is Christ the fullness of the Godhead, not only is Christ the firstborn from the, among the dead, he's the reconciler, verse 20, through him, through Christ, God to, to, to reconcile to himself all things. Now, here's a doctrine, isn't it? Here's a teaching. We're only going to scratch the surface of this tonight, brethren. Let's just scratch it just a little to reconcile to himself all things. Notice here, Paul doesn't say all men. He doesn't say all people. In the Greek, the tense is neuter. The thing about Greek, it has masculine, feminine, and neuter, very clearly distinctive. Here it's neuter. He's saying all things. God is to reconcile to himself all all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Let me give you a history lesson. One of the early church fathers, Oregon, believed in what is called universalism, that there would come a time when Christ would literally turn back the clock on sin And do so in such a way that not only would everybody be saved, but even the devil himself would be redeemed. Sharp intake of breath. Be careful, friends, because such doctrine is infiltrating even evangelical Christianity these days. Because we find it unpalatable to suggest that any one might be condemned to an eternal, literal hell. And so we have infiltrating down the ranks, uh, theories, hypotheses of of annihilationism, perhaps. That God is such a God of love that he would not condemn a a single soul, never mind multiple souls, to eternal condemnation. And so there'll come a point in that judgment where he'll draw a line and they will cease to exist. That's of course contrary to scripture that says all souls live eternally. We are created in the image of God. Physically? Of course not. But in our soul selves, we we are created in the image of God. We will exist forever. And equally, this this doctrine of of, of eternal condemnation is so unpalatable that that even within so-called evangelical confines, People are embracing now this universalistic thought. Jesus Christ died for all. Whether or not they place their hope and faith and trust in Him. This is nothing new. Oregon started this theology. Be careful. Paul writes, God in Christ reckons to Himself all things, not all people. This brand of universalism has been a minority belief, I grant you that. But I believe it's 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 increasingly on the rise. I sit in funerals and listen to I listen to Christian ministers basically put everybody in heaven. I sat there thinking, has he got the right to do that? Certainly not. But you see, it's on the increase. We've got to be very careful what we what we accept. You see, it's significant. The Bible does not teach, though some wish it had, that regardless of repentance and faith in Christ, at the end of time, everybody, from St. Francis of Assisi through to Adolf Hitler, everybody, whether they want to or not will be saved. But what does it mean for God in Christ to reconcile all things to himself? What does that mean? Well, I believe it teaches that the death of Christ atones for the sins of people and puts us right with God if, if of course, that soul embraces what is the gift offered. From above. Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Hallelujah. Jesus died to atone the world unto Himself. But whosoever believeth on Him shall not perish. So, yes, God's done His part in Christ. Christ died for the sins of the world. And His blood is efficacious enough. For everyone to be redeemed. But not everyone will be redeemed. Because not everyone will believe upon Him. Sadly. I wish it were different. I genuinely wish it were different. But it is what it is. And we have to be careful. But reconcile unto Himself all things. If you, want to, if you want to spend some time meditating, then go to Romans and read Romans 8, 19 through 21. Uh, Philip's translation puts it well. It says, the whole creation is on tiptoe, <laughs> I like that, to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. God reconciles unto himself all things. Not all people, but the whole creation is on tentacles. Anticipating that time, the wonderful sight when the sons, the daughters of God come into their own. Friends, there is going to be a whole new created sphere. I love those scriptures in Isaiah 11. It speaks about that day. It says, uh, that day when the wolf will live with the lamb. That day when the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. That day when the world will be full of the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. I believe that's what Paul is getting at here. God will reconcile us of all things. He will make good, if you like, His created order. And the world as we know it, understand it, will be reconciled, uh, some scholars suggest to, to a, a pre-fallen state. What was the world like pre-fall? Well, it was paradise. What was paradise like? We don't know. We haven't been there yet. I've heard people go on holiday to, to to Bali, for instance, and say, "Oh, it was paradise." I'm sure it was nice. It wasn't paradise. I've heard people come back from Hawaii and say, "Oh, it was like paradise." I look at them and say, "I'm sure it was nice, but it wasn't paradise." I used to be a poet and I didn't know it (laughs) because paradise is a pre-fallen state it is what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden before that fateful occasion when they disobeyed the word of God do we know what it's like? no we don't (laughs) but we will know I believe we will know because the world will be restored to a, a pre-fallen state. Hallelujah. Because God will reconcile to himself all things. Hallelujah. Isn't that something? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that something to look forward to? All things. Hallelujah. And uh, my friends, it's going to be a glorious occasion. I know some brethren find it difficult to reconcile the idea of a heaven, inverted commas, on earth. But that's what we're talking about here, isn't it? Because what is heaven after all? What is heaven? It's the presence of God. And and I believe in in the literal millennial reign of Christ on earth. I've searched the scriptures for years and years and years and years. I, I cannot discern anything else but when Christ comes with his church in glory, of course subsequent to the rapture of the Christian church, we'll be raptured. And that will kick in of course a, a, a time of, of tribulation. Uh, the Tribulation is, is a means to an end. God's fulfilling his purposes for those who remain. Difficult though it will be. A seven year tribulation, I believe that to be a literal period, of seven years. Split into two halves. Three and a half years uh, when God will deal with his people, the Jews. Time of Jacob's trial. And three and a half years subsequent to that, of course. But it's it's all a means to an end. That, 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 that Christ will eventually come in glory with his church. Come, come where? He come to the earth. Why will he come? Why will he come? Why would he want to come here? Because God, in Christ, has reconciled all things to himself. It'll be, not, not the world as we know it, it'll be a, a, a beautiful pre-fallen pre state. And so shall we reign Hallelujah. with Christ Hallelujah. in glory. Hallelujah. Of course, that will pre-empt the, the new heaven and the new earth, <laughs> if you read on. But, but my friends, that's what Paul's getting at here. He's actually speaking, I think, in this Christological discourse Eschatologically. And that's the wonder of Christology. You cannot, you cannot think about Christology, the teaching, the doctrine of Christ, without thinking eschatologically. Can you? You cannot. Because Christ saved us. He saved us from sin, not for what we have now, but for what is to come. It disturbs me. Too many Christians are kind of content with what they have now Ooh. what's that all about what's that all about and so we get far too melancholic when we, we think about what is to come <laughs> I know that when we mourn the loss of a, of a loved one in Christ it's a sad occasion because we miss them but we don't mourn them as those who have no hope that one that has now left the scene of time is in a state of glory that they want to swap this for because they're in the immediate presence of Christ to be away from the bodies, to be home with the Lord. <laughs> That's what scripture says. I, I, I get confused when Christians get far too melancholic at the loss of a, a, of a brother and sister in Christ because was Christ saved us not for this, but for us to come. In the meantime, it grants grace. And boy, oh boy, do we need it. We need his grace. His grace is sufficient for us. But he saved us for us to come. He gives us grace for us to come. We have to go through many trials, says Paul, to enter the kingdom of God. Trials for what reason? For us to come. Of course. That's what it's all about, brethren. Is for what is to come. And so praise God that Christ is the reconciler. God reconciling to himself all things. It speaks eschatologically about what is to come. Hallelujah. I tell you it's the best. It's the best. Oh, far too many Christians are far too comfortable in the world as we know it. They get the feet under the desk of the world, so to speak. And that's not what is promised. What is promised is he saves us from our sin, yes, that we might know the fullness of, of joy now, yes, but it's for what is to come. My God shift our perspectives. I think the problem with us in these days is in that 21st century life and living, the problem is that that we live in a, in a in society, in a culture that endeavours to cheat death. Our, our forefathers in Christ, of course, they often took each day as it came, because if you if you got smallpox hundred years ago, the likelihood is you die. But smallpox today, no, never never heard of, is it? You know diseases that once were killers and, and therefore people were, were cut short in, 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 in arguably their prime. And so they kind of lived each day at a time. And therefore, I suppose that helped their faith dynamic. They had to trust in God more. And therefore the very idea that they might die tomorrow when well, they took comfort in the reality that to be away from the body is called with the Lord. You see, we live in a society that, that endeavors to cheat death. It's it, 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 it souls is a lie. You're okay, you're okay, you're okay. You can live and you can keep, keep on living. And so we get kind of, uh, you know, uh, no. it's quite, quite nice here after all. No, it ain't. It's a fallen world. Yeah. What is to come is better by far. Amen. And Jesus Christ is the reconciler. God through Christ has reconciled all things to himself the payday one day, <laughs> we will be in his presence. Hallelujah. And he will come with his church, with you and I, with Doug gathered, and even, in glory, and establish his reign. Where will he establish it? In the holy city of, of, of Jerusalem, in, in, in Zion. <laughs> That's where it will be. Don't ask me how, it will just be there. Hallelujah. And, and, and we'll be reigning with him. Isn't that something? It'll be the garden of the Eden all over again, paradise. For a thousand years before the fullness of his promise and a new heaven and a new earth. That's the wonder of redemption. This is what Paul is speaking of here. Father, we thank you for your precious word. It blows our minds when we think of Christ of who he is. Of what is he because and what he has achieved because of who he is. Hallelujah. The head of the church. Oh, how wonderful, Father Jesus, that we can depend upon you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the fullness of God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the firstborn from the dead, and that you, Lord, are the reconciler unto the Godhead. Thank you, Lord, that you reconciled me to to my Father in heaven. And I thank you, Lord, that that for me, the best is yet to come. Give us an eternal perspective, Lord. Shift our focus away from the things of this world. Keep us focused on Christ. The author and the perfecter of our faith. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. That we would have life in Him. Amen. Amen.